If there was a sunset in the Gospel of John as it relates to Jesus' public ministry, sort of a closing chapter in what he is saying to the world, this would be it. John takes a sharp turn from the public ministry of Jesus in chapter 12 to the private ministry of Jesus in chapters 13 and that follow. We have an intimate and personal encounter with Jesus and the disciples. We'll find in John chapter 13, him washing the disciples' feet. We'll find him in the upper room saying things like, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We'll see him pray the high priestly prayer. Now we'll be looking at those texts in the month of November. For the next two weeks, we're going to turn our focus to the global platform of our church, thinking about what it means to reach unreached people groups. We're going to wrestle with the number three billion. It's a number of people who if something isn't radically done, they'll never hear the name of Jesus. They'll never know him. It's also our time that we welcome in our foreign staff, our missionaries who are serving all over the world to help to encourage them and to have them leave our church feeling rested and refreshed in the Lord by how we love on them and take care of them. Today we're in chapter 12. We'll get to 13 and following. Today is the final word of Jesus. Hopefully, Hopefully you by now know that there's a single word that dominates the book of John. Do you know what this word is? What's the word? Please say believe and validate my existence as a pastor. Please say believe. Good, thank you, three of you, appreciate that. John 20, 31 says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. So what John does here is he brings to close Jesus' public ministry, and what he does is helps us to understand Jesus' mission, helps us to understand the warning that's all throughout John's gospel, and also to understand the message of Jesus. So mission, warning, and message. Those are the three things we're going to unpack. And I just want you to know that if you're a person who's read the Bible a lot, what I'm about to share with you won't be new information, but... Here's what I've found, the more I study the Bible, the more that I know that it's not the new things that are important. They are important, but not in the same way that old things that have new application in my life. So we're going to see here the public nature of Jesus's ministry and the way in which it draws to a close. So first here, the mission of Jesus. Remember that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead He's had his feet anointed by Mary. He's marched into the city of Jerusalem and rode on a donkey in this triumphal moment when everyone didn't understand who he was. And the text that we were in last week concluded with these Greeks coming to see Jesus. And what John wants you to see, that while the opposition to Jesus is growing, his ministry is widening. The threats are getting greater and the breadth of his ministry is expanding, not just to the Jewish people, but now to the Greeks. And it was in chapter 12 and verse 24 that Jesus made this defining statement when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the mission of Jesus. And then we come to verse 27 where it says, now is my soul troubled. This word carries strong emotion with it. 
It can mean to be agitated, to be horrified, to be anxious. And what John identifies here is that as Jesus understands what his mission will require of him, there is deep internal tension within his soul. Last week I said that the mission of Jesus was countercultural. The people around him didn't fully understand what he was trying to accomplish. Here we see it's not just countercultural, it's also counterintuitive. Human beings are not naturally inclined to embrace the kind of path that is in front of Jesus, and John wants you to see the struggle. Here is the Garden of Gethsemane moment in John's Gospel. There's no record of the Garden of Gethsemane in in John's account, but in this moment, John wants you to see something similar here. He wants you to see a Savior who is lamenting about the costs of what his mission will involve. He talks to God about his struggle. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that the Bible talks this way. Not only here, but in Lament Psalms and the book of Lamentations. It helps us to see that the mission of Jesus here doesn't mean the absence of struggle. Here's the suffering Savior who feels emotional weariness. And what we find here is that the mission of Jesus involves living through a struggle with a view towards a greater good, the greater glory of God. And so, just so we know, we haven't hardly even started the sermon, but already there's an application here, which is this, that following Jesus doesn't mean that you always feel emotionally happy of what God has asked you to do, and yet you still choose to do it because you know it is for the good of the glory of God. There are many times when there is joyful happiness with what it is you get to be involved in, but more often than not, true following Jesus means that you acknowledge this is really hard, but I know that I can still trust God. To demonstrate that Jesus' mindset is spot on, the Father speaks. The voice, it says in verse 28, comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd thinks in verse 29 that it thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. So here is the father speaking. Can you think of two other times in the gospel when the father speaks, not in John's gospel, but in the other gospels? Jesus hears the father's voice in the baptism when he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you know the other one? Transfiguration. When he is glorified and Elijah and Moses show up and the disciples are so juiced about this moment that they say, let's set up a tent and stay here. In fact, one of the gospel writers says that Peter said these words and then he adds that Peter didn't know quite what he was saying. Uh, Some people think that Peter helped write one of the gospels and I would imagine he was like, put that in there, put that in there that I didn't really know what I was saying. (laughs) Why does the father speak? He speaks to validate what Jesus has just said. He speaks in order to demonstrate that Jesus' mission and the glory of God are going to be accomplished. Verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. Notice this, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It doesn't mean that the final 
defeat of the enemy, Satan, is going to accomplish. That day is yet to come, but the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus signals that in heaven the countdown clock for the enemy's defeat has started, and it's clicking down every single day. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I need to be reminded that the accuser's days are numbered. Jesus is trying to accomplish his mission. In verse 32, he tells us exactly what it is. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John, just so you know what he's talking about, John adds this commentary in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He wants you to know very clearly, Jesus is talking about the way in which he is going to die, that he will be lifted up. And when he does, he will draw all people to himself. Now, don't think when he says all people, he means that every human being is thereby going to be saved. He's not speaking here of a universalism that somehow, some way that Jesus saves everyone, even those who reject him. Rather, what Jesus is signaling here is that his death, burial, and resurrection will be applied to people of all ethnic groups. It's not just coming to Israel, but the coming of these Greeks symbol or, or signal, rather, that the gospel is going to spread and that the mission of Jesus is to take his people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. In fact, the book of Revelation specifically identifies this moment. John sees this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the land. They're clothed in white robes. Those are robes that picture righteousness and they have Jesus's name on the name tag. These are Jesus's robes that he gives to all those who are declared righteous. And notice what they're doing with palm branches. They're waving palm branches in his hand. We talked about that last week and they're crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb Jesus is going to call a people from all over the globe to stand before him from all ethnicities in order to declare salvation belongs to our God and to the one on the throne to the lamb the mission of Jesus is to rescue people from all walks of life to be part of this choir of people. This is the church's mission. This is what Jesus came to do. When I'm lifted up, he says, I'll draw all people to myself. That is the aim of the gospel. It's the mission of Jesus. Now that's a beautiful, compelling vision. And then in classic John form, lest we get too thrilled with the highlight of how awesome this is, and it is awesome, he goes right back to the problem of unbelief. So after just saying, when I'm lifted up, I'm gonna draw all people to myself, and by the way, there's a bunch of people who don't believe in me. That's what John does over and over and over and over, and we find here now a warning. In verse 34, the crowds ask a clarifying question. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So that we know the law. The law says that the Son of Man is going to reign, and you're saying he's got to be lifted up, and they apparently knew that there's something related to the curse of God being lifted up from the Old Testament. doesn't make any sense to them. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't answer their question. 
He says in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Notice the urgency of this. He says the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now notice, Jesus is calling them to believe. He's calling them to believe. He's telling you, he's telling them, believe, believe now. Don't wait, believe now. Remember this because we're going to see a really tough text that John's going to throw in the middle of this and you're going to see a challenging contrast. And for some of us, our heads are going to hurt a little bit in light of what you see in this passage. But here, notice that Jesus is calling these people to believe. But what we're going to see is that they don't believe. Look at verse 36b. Jesus had said these things. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So John wants you to see something here. He wants you to realize that the problem with these people, our problem, not just their problem, but our problem, is not merely the absence of information, but rather it is the problem of the hardness of heart. The fact of the matter is, is these crowds don't want to listen. They're not interested in believing. And so Jesus retreats from them as sort of a physical parable of their unbelief. John wants to, you as the reader to understand fully what's happening here. And so therefore, he quotes two passages from Isaiah. The first one, in Isaiah 53, sounds like this. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He quotes the text about the suffering Messiah. That was a foreign concept to them. And he wants you to see that once again, Jesus just isn't being missed. It's that people don't want to believe that this is what their Messiah is going to be like. There's another passage that we'll see. But first look at verse 39. He says, therefore, they could not believe. So remember, Jesus had called them, believe, 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 but they're not believing. And John takes this Old Testament passage, he overlays it on this particular narrative in order to help you as the reader understand what's going on. So he wants you to see two things at the same time. Jesus' call for people to believe, but the undergirding problem of humanity, he wants you to wrestle with the problem of unbelief. Why does he do that? Because he wants believers to understand A, how you came to faith in Christ and how powerless you were apart from the intervention of God, lest you stand before God and say, in effect, in your heart, God, you got a catch when you got me. And he also wants us to wrestle with the waywardness and the powerlessness of the human heart because baked within our humanity is this broken confession of I'm going to do it. And those of you who have children know how it's baked into the hearts of your kids to say, I do, I do. You know what had to teach your kids how to do that? It's part of the brokenness of our humanity. And what John does here is the same thing that Jesus did to Nicodemus in chapter 3 when talking 
to this religious ruler. It's as though he kept moving things further and further away from him in order to help him realize that the problem with Nicodemus wasn't information. The problem was that Nicodemus needed to look in the mirror and realize that his self-confidence was the greatest barrier to him coming to faith in Jesus. Now look at verse 40. He quotes Isaiah, a text that says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. It's important to note here that Jesus doesn't quote this verse. Jesus doesn't say this. John is the one who's quoting this. Jesus is calling them to believe. But John uses this in order to explain their unbelief, and he points us directly to the hardness of the heart. He wants us to know that a religious blindness has fallen upon Israel, and it is both a means of judgment and the way that the gospel would be spread to non-Jewish people. Why does John put this in here? Here's why. Because while he wants you at one level to see the beauty of Jesus' mission, he wants you to hear the offering of, I will draw all people to myself. He also wants you to wrestle and to feel the weight of your brokenness so that you will entirely look to Jesus. It's the same thing that Paul does in Romans chapter 3 when he says this in verses 10 and 11. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Some of you, when you hear this text, you you want to throw up your hands and just say, this is fatalism. But what you need to know is this text is not designed to make you throw up your hands. Instead, this is a text that's there in order to remind you how desperately you needed God's help. That means that if you're a follower of Jesus and your eyes saw the cross and you believed that you need to know that that happened because God came after you and something happened in your heart by sovereign move of God where you saw what you wouldn't see and you believed what you wouldn't believe and you felt what you wouldn't feel were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit and you ought to marvel that that happened to you. Rather than throwing up your hands and saying, well, that means that we shouldn't call people to believe. Well, does Jesus not call people to believe? Over and over, he says, believe, 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 believe. This text is given not as a barrier to belief, but rather an explanation of unbelief. In order for John to help us understand how broken are we? The Bible says we are so broken. Listen, we are so broken that we need Jesus' help to think right. We need Jesus' help to see right. We need the Holy Spirit to help us know what to think and what to believe. And when we believe and see the right things, it is not because somehow you in your infinite wisdom suddenly now saw things. Friend, you only saw that because God by his spirit blew in your heart and helped you to see them. This should not make you throw up your hands. This should make you fall on your knees and say, Jesus, Help me. So if you're here today and something about this is strangely attractive to you and you find yourself leaning in and saying, I want to know more about that, you keep leaning in, friend, because it is the work of God's spirit that even creates that longing. And yet John isn't done. Look at what he says in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities 
believed in him. Now that word believe probably needs to have like air quotes behind it or around it. Because he doesn't mean believe the way he means believe in other passages. He means believe here like James says, even the demons believe and shudder. Because what John says next in this text verifies that their belief isn't legitimate. It's just verbal. They, they, they think he's the son of God, but they're not willing to follow him. He says, so that they would, uh, but for the fear of the Pharisees, rather, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And here's why. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John records a strong warning here, and that is that people don't come to Jesus unless they're broken, and people don't really believe in Jesus until they're done with themselves and done with everyone else. People don't come to Jesus without talking about him, without going public. In other words, let me just give you a, a loving caution if you claim to be a Christian, but the people in your life don't know that you are, people at work don't know that you are, your extended family don't know that you are, you claim to be a Christian, but nobody knows that you are, you probably aren't a Christian. Because to be a Christian means that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, I believe God raised him from the dead, and people look at, like, look at you, you believe God raises people from the dead? You're like, yep. And I put my trust in that Jesus and he saved me from my sins. And people look at you, that's crazy. You're like, I know, I love it. I give my life to this. And they're like, you're an idiot. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that God chose to use things that are low to confound the high. He chose to use things that are foolish to confound the wise. Why? So that there'd be no boasting, so that human beings wouldn't look at this gospel and go, look at what we've believed but instead would look at themselves and go, I can't believe God loved me. I can't believe he rescued me. Like I know where I would be right now if it wasn't for him. I know what I would be pursuing, I know what I'd be grabbing a hold of, I know what I would be consuming and where I'd find my identity, but God came. The Puritans used to call it the holy hound of heaven. God sought me, he wouldn't let me go. He came after me, he rescued me, not just from my sins, he rescued me from me. John wants you to see the problem of unbelief. He wants you to see that if you're a believer, to rejoice that God rescued you, and if you're a non-believer, for you to realize what's broken inside of you and how God could help you today to believe and in believing receive. And then we come to the final words of Jesus regarding his message. Look at verse 45. Suddenly Jesus reappears. Remember a moment ago he was hidden. It's kind of a physical parable, parable where Jesus removes himself and then he reappears. And Jesus cries out now and says, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So we see a couple things about Jesus' message here. The first is this, is that he calls people to believe through him. Jesus is in effect saying that he's the conduit of the message from the Father to the world. You know the text in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Or as we'll see in John chapter 14, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
What Jesus is saying here is he is the only way for people to be right with God. It was an audacious claim unless he really was the son of God. Secondly, Jesus tells them that they could be saved through him. Not just to believe through him, but they could be saved through him. Look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me, look at this, may not remain in darkness. In other words, Jesus comes to save people from darkness. What does that mean? So important. In the book of Ephesians, this is what Paul says about this darkness. He describes the lost condition of mankind as this. They are darkened in their understanding, meaning the way that they think reflects the brokenness of the world. The crazy tragedy is they think they're right, but they're actually wrong. They think they're illumined, but they're actually in the dark. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. That should sound very familiar. We just talked about that from the book of Isaiah. And here's the description. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what darkness is. Darkness is sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In other words, it means that the one thing that you've done that's wrong is never enough. You always want to do more and more and more and more and more. It grows. Sin is like a cancer. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because once is never enough because the one thing you did in the first place was because of the allure and the attraction, sort of the, the sick sort of thrill of doing something that you know you shouldn't. And that wears away and you go after it again and again and again and again. And that is what destroys human beings from the inside out. The Bible calls it darkness. Or the book of Colossians puts it this way. Put to death what is earthly in you. What is that? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What does Jesus save people from? He saves them from these things that destroy human beings and their relationships. I mean, listen, if you're not even a Christian today, you could agree at least that anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, immorality, evil desire, covetousness, they destroy things. Or maybe you're one of those people who think kind of in a sexual revolution sort of way. Nah, it doesn't really matter. Well, that matters when you're married and your spouse cheats on you. We still at least agree that's wrong. Like that's not right and it hurts and it violates trust. And the Bible says that's darkness. It's that we keep going to things that destroy relationships and cause us to look at ourselves in the mirror and go, who am I? And the message of Jesus is he comes to rescue you from that. That's the darkness. He saves you from the pursuit of things that destroy you and the things that destroy people around you. He also saves you from the horror of being on the wrong side of God's judgment. That's what verse 47 means. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge And what is that judge? It's this, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, the judgment that comes 
is by the fact that you heard the word, this word, even today. And the hope is that Jesus saves from that darkness. So if you're a Christian, here's why this matters. Because this next week when those things like anger and malice and slander and obscene talk, when sensuality comes across your path, you gotta remind yourself, I was saved from that junk. Like that's what I was rescued from, that is darkness. That's not just messing around and flirting around with something that seems to be a little bit attractive, even in my soul, even still. That's the junk that I was saved out of. That's the darkness that Jesus died for. So when that temptation comes this week, remember this moment. Jesus was lifted up to draw you to himself, and what he draw you out of was all of that mess. The enemy loves to make it just a little attractive. You need to remind yourself, this is what Jesus saved me from. And then we conclude with the offer of eternal life. Verse 49, I have not spoken on my authority, my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And then he says this in verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. Again, John 3, 16, God sent his son. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. What I say, therefore, Jesus says, I say as the Father has told me. The whole mission of Jesus is to deliver this message of eternal life. And so the Gospel of John involves this Strong warning and hopeful message, and here it is as summarized in John chapter one. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's the unbelief. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. What a statement. John wants you to see Jesus comes to his own people, comes to his own world, comes to his own creation. He's the one who spoke and the universe teamed with life. He comes as ruler and king, and yet his people don't understand him, and his people reject him. They hang him on a cross. They crucify him as one accursed of God, and he does all of that in order that everyone who would receive him become not just those who are forgiven. They actually become the very children of God. The God from every tribe, nation, and tongue is calling people to become his children, rescuing them from darkness, and making them to be his very own through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So if you're a Christian, this is the reason why you are on earth. This is the thing that you live for. It is that God rescued you and gave you the right to become something that you weren't because of the work that was done for you that you could have never done on your own, namely that Jesus died in order to set you free. And if you're not a Christian, friend, the purpose of Jesus' coming into the world is to call people from all walks of life, from every ethnicity, from all kinds of struggles and all sorts of sin issues. So here's my hope and promise to you. You are never too far gone to not come to Jesus. Hear me, I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care how long it's been, how deep it's gone. You are never, ever too far gone for the Spirit of Christ 
to not be able to swoop in and to suddenly peel off the blinders of your eyes. In fact, for some of you, it may be happening right now where you are seeing something you've never seen before. You may have heard this message. You may have heard these verses a hundred times, and for some reason, they're falling differently on your heart today. Why? Because God is calling you to come. He's asking you to become a believer. He's saying, why not come today? Don't wait another day, another hour. Jesus says, if they're in the middle of the light, then walk in the light. Don't assume there'll be light tomorrow, but instead come to faith in Jesus today. You can't stay in the middle. It's either light or darkness, belief or unbelief, Jesus or Satan, forgiven or condemned, heaven or hell. The question you have to ask yourself, friend, is what side are you on? And the whole reason John writes this gospel is to call people who are destroying their lives, filled with darkness, and help them to realize, I can't do this on my own anymore. And John would say to you, that's right. Look to Jesus. Get on your knees and plead for him to make you new. Because when Jesus comes, he changes everything. His own people rejected him. But to those who did receive him, he gives the right to become the children of God. He was lifted up and invites you to believe. And with that, the public ministry of Jesus is done. And now we go into the inner room and we see Judas betray him and he washes the disciples' feet and he prays for the glory of God in the high priestly prayer as Jesus is led to the cross to accomplish the very mission he told us about and welcomes you to embrace today. Father in heaven, we pray that perhaps even in this moment that you would draw people to yourself right now, that there'd be some who would say, God, I'd believe that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They would tell a friend, you know, today I became a Christian. Like, seriously, I believe today. I walked in, I didn't believe. I believe now. It's crazy. I don't know how it happened, but I believe. Oh, God, that that would be true. That the enemy would have not one more day, not one more victory. That darkness could be transformed into light and that condemnation could be transformed into forgiveness. Oh, so Lord, do that, we pray. And for those who know you, would you let this rehearsing of the gospel be so sweet to their soul that they're ready to tell someone about it and ready to see temptations through the lens of it? God, grant us, we pray, the grace to follow you faithfully because this gospel means everything. It's changed us and made us a different people. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.